Welcome back to Real Talk, everyone. We are living that end of semester life. You hear Saida trying not to crack up in the background. I'm here with, also with Danielle. Hello. And so in this, for this episode today, we have two guests that we're going to talk with in just a minute. But I wanted us to think about, you know, all of us in academia, we have a reason for studying what we do. You know, it's not random. I don't believe anyway. And we're not just objective, neutral observers, though some people like to think that they are. But what led both of you down your paths? Okay, I guess I'll start because, Danielle, I just know you got a tail. <laughs> I don't know what you, I mean, I probably do. I know. <laughs> I mean, we have long tails, but what's the short, what's one, what's one version of it? Oh, me search. It's not real research. It's me search. It's That's valid. important to me. So I want to look at effects of where you grow up and growing mm. up in an impoverished neighborhood yep. in the South Bronx. It's important to me that we understand that we think a little differently, especially when you're in a city and riding the subway so young, you have these hyperattention to everything. So mm. why not explore that? It changes development in some way. I believe, I hypothesize. Yes. We'll find out together, won't we? Boy, do we have the perfect episode for you today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you even know how perfect. Um, uh, Danielle, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. I I, I don't have the brain capacity for a tail. I'm not even going to hold y'all. But, <laughs> and you also um, have many, many, many in interest. You are yes. not really a disciplinary person. I think it's because I'm, I myself am a margin of a margin of a margin. Yeah. Um, and I find myself in spaces and rooms that that comes up a lot, very unintentionally, or it, it just happens. And so I've always found myself looking for those people and trying to absorb that information just as a, I guess, what do you, what do you call it? Just like a person is learning on their own. Sure. Because um, I, I thought it was from school and then I realized 90% of what I know, I don't know why I know. And it was not the education system. And I don't know where I got any of this. Right. But yeah, just wanting to learn more about the people that get left out, probably from being left out a lot. Mm. And learn about myself, which this program kicked my booty. Okay. <laughs> Self-exploration by accident is not fun. <laughs> Danielle, can I make you feel awkward for a second? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to give you some flowers. Oh, I God. feel like you do such a great job in being in all kinds of different spaces. And even just through the podcast, you've been able to bring people. I'm like, Danielle, how do you know them? You just know everybody, but you everybody so seamlessly it. maneuver through all kinds of spaces. Like you're sitting here saying that you feel like you're on the margin. And I'm like, Danielle, you are in the middle of the mix mm -hmm. all the time. And I think that's dope. That's such a good quality. You know, I'm an introvert. Introvert or extrovert? I like my couch. I thought I was me an too. introvert. My <laughs> was like, you are not. Me and my husband talked about it. I said, you do such a great job. So okay. kudos to you, Danielle. That's a skill. A lot of people need to learn it. So flowers to you. Well, thank you. I know it made you feel awkward. It's okay. Yeah. Absorb I mean, I think that's I mean, part of it. I mean, she doesn't look that awkward. I think that's part of it. And I'm trying to come into that of just like, I would not like other people to feel left out the way that I do. Mm. So mm. I've been trying to include as many people as possible and make sure that everybody feels not how I felt. So I think living like that for a really long time is where I ended up in the mix all the time mm -hmm. because I've just been trying to be inclusive mm -hmm. just in my action and not even just like, you know, religiously, but literally just like, I don't want anybody to feel left out yeah. and I want anybody to be made fun of and da -da -da -da. like, I guess very selfishly, you know, because that's been my story. So like, I can't do it to anyone mm -hmm. else and feel like a good person. Sure. Mm. Do a great job of bringing everyone into the fold. That's true. Stop undermining your achievements, ma'am. Well, listen, I'm a black woman in America. It's going to be hard. And that's why I'm going to give you flowers. <laughs> and speaking of, <laughs> we have two sociologists in the room. Yes, we do. Look, I didn't even answer this question. I yet. know. Casey. I also, I wrote the question and I was like, oh no, what am I going to say? Mm. I do know that as a teacher, like it's very clear to me that I had very loving teachers like from early on. Well, not all of them to be very clear, but yeah. <laughs> they created real home spaces and, and like a couple in elementary school, a couple in middle school, uh, and they were always English teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I always really was tuned in to, to stories and storytelling and language. I'm outnumbered in terms of like academic discipline at this table right now. Yes. But I study 
language and stories and how we make meaning through language. Like I, I have always thought that's fascinating that you can use a term and utterly change the meaning of a situation. You can demonize, you can mm-hmm. do all kinds of things just, just through the, through the word. And then, you know, I also like in terms of becoming a cartoonist, again, that's all related to stories and, and there's a piece in there too about making people feel welcome, but I want to do that as a teacher. Like I want to, I basically, in terms of teaching, like, I feel like my teachers all have given, not all, (laughs) all, but have given gifts to me that I then want to pass on to students. And I get the most stressed, I realize, when I feel like the constraints sometimes of higher ed and our jobs make it hard for us to be those kind of teachers that we want to be or researchers that we want to be. And that's when I'm sort of the most pissed um, that sounds very uh, academic. Don't that sound academic? It sure did to me. It sounded like academia. It, it also sounded, it sounded like, like professionalism and like learning language is academic and collaboration and development and language. Academic mm-hmm. sounds very research to me. But. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we do. We have two guests with us today to talk about one a, a very recent book, the other one still a recent book. Two associate professors here at Southern Connecticut State University in sociology. We have my friend Cassie Meyerhofer, whose book co-written with Brittany Lee Rodriguez is called Imprisoned, Interlocking Oppression in Law Enforcement, Housing, and Public Education. Ding, 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 Saida. Nice. Out from University of Georgia Press in 2023. And we have Venezia Michelson, a.k.a. Venice, whose book Mothering and Desistance in Reentry came out in 2020 from Rutledge. And we want to invite you into this conversation. So what led y'all to become sociologists and within your field? And Cassie, I've known you for years, and I actually don't know the answer to this question. What had you go down the particular path of research that you are on, at least in this moment? Well, do you want me to answer why I'm a sociologist, or do you want me to answer the, why I do the research that I do? I want both. both. Okay. I want both. <laughs> Greedy. All right. So I'm going to try and make this a very short story that is actually a very long story but so I grew up in like Mormon Utah very like repressed space for a little baby queer to be growing up and I was when I was in college I had all these incredible professors I was minoring in women's studies and majoring in psychology because my AP psych teacher was like my first like real crush (laughs) I'm pretty sure I was in love with her so so I was like I want to be just like her when I grow up yes but I was taking all these like queer theory feminist theory postmodern theory classes in women's studies Mm -hmm. and then taking abnormal psychology as a psychology major and that was the first time I learned about gender identity disorder and it there was like a real cognitive dissonance happening for me because I couldn't think of like this social construct also existing as a disorder when you didn't fit where you were supposed to fit along right, right, like right. this continuum. Yeah. So after talking to, you know, mentors, other students, they were like, oh my God, you need to major in sociology. Mm. And so I took my first sociology class and I was just like, oh my God, these are my people. And I couldn't <laughs> see myself doing anything else. Huh. I had amazing relationships with my professors Like I said, I was growing up in a space where women were expected to go to college to get married. And so there wasn't a lot of mentoring around like going to graduate school. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And so my family certainly didn't know how to mentor me. They didn't really have an idea of what grad school was. So my professors like really leaned Mm -hmm. in and like got me through the whole process. So so that's why I'm a sociologist. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the research that I do, like I said, when I was in college, really focusing on like feminist theory, queer theory. And then I got into grad school in Buffalo, New York, which is one of the most segregated cities by race in the country. Yep. And so I became very invested in like, you know, gentrification patterns, segregation patterns, racism, how it's built into so many of our systems and really focused on racial residential segregation for a really long time. And now I'm doing a lot of work in how multiple systems intersect and overlap. Because as we know, oppression doesn't happen within these silos. There's a lot of uh, interaction between systems in this country. So 
that's that's where I am. Nice. Yeah. I love the piece about how, I mean, for so many of us, like mentors play such a big role in personal relationships in terms of the whole path we take in life. And even you know? people you don't, like maybe you didn't identify as a mentor. Or some people as like anti-mentors, right? Like, yeah, ooh, or like, oop. In spite I, of. Like, ooh, this, this diagnosis uh-huh. is making me uncomfy. I'm going to mm-hmm. find another way. But so much is, is kind of affective. Interesting. All right, Venice, how about you? So I was also a psychology major in college. Um, it's like one of the biggest majors. <laughs> went straight into a psychology major. Um, I had gotten interested because, actually, I grew up in Hamden, Connecticut, and I was born at Yale New Haven Hospital. I grew up across from Henninger Farm up in Hamden, and I had gotten a volunteer job at St. Raphael's when it was still St. Raphael's and not yep. Yale in the Yale Child Study Center, which was a really pretty intense experience at the time. This was probably back in like 1991, 92. A lot of kids with a lot of struggles, a lot going on with with these kids. So anyway, so I, I went to college, Barnard College in New York City, psychology, but I finished the major within like a year and a half or, or two years oh, wow. or something like that. I finished it real fast and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so I took a <laughs> Russian literature and English class that I adored. It was fabulous. But then I took a class called Gender, Race, and Class with Dr. Lynn Chancer, who is uh, now a professor at Hunter. She's been mm. at Princeton. She's at Barnard and Columbia. And she is just a spectacular human. She's the grad center now in sociology and I just fell in love we read a book called Between Women about helper women wealthy women and their household helpers and she just I don't know she just killed it in that class and I always I just wanted to be like her I wanted to do what she did but then when I was graduating I applied to three different types of graduate programs I applied to sociology programs I got an NYU sociology PhD program I applied to postdoc pre-med programs because I wanted to be a neuroscientist and then I applied to the criminal justice doctoral program at John Jay College and decided Woo. to go there. Oh. Go Bloodhound. So I got my PhD. <laughs> literally what side you <laughs> yeah. So I got my PhD. I wanted to be Clarice Starling, obviously, of Sons of the Lambs, because yeah. that's what everybody who goes on this path <laughs> wants to do. So I got my PhD in criminal justice with focus on gender and crime. All the while, I was working at the Women's Prison Association, which is the nation's oldest organization serving caged women and their families and women in reentry. And I was working there for a number of years, and on a whim, I decided to apply for a faculty job. And I worked for 15 years at Montclair State University in New Jersey in the Justice Studies Department and the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Departments. But then position came up close to home. Mm. I was commuting to New Jersey. I was living in New York for a long time, but then I was commuting to New Jersey for a long time. And I was done driving. I did not want to see the Tappan Zee Bridge ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I watched the old one come down and the new one go up and, you know, all that. You're speaking a lot of Saida's language right now. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I was done going over the Tappan Zee. So the position here at Southern came up and it was really a dream come true. So interesting. So if stars had aligned differently, you could be in a more medical... Yeah, I don't know. Probably. I, I love neuroscience. I think mm. it's phenomenal. Lucky, but, lucky. Uh, you know, I did not do, it was much more expensive to do a postdoc a pre-med program Absolutely. than to go to John Jay. So I did that. <laughs> Interesting. And I wanted it. I also, it wasn't just about money. I, that's what I wanted to do. And I'm very glad I did it. Well, we're so glad to be able to talk to both of you here today. And it's it's interesting reading both of your books back to back because Cassie's book, Cassie and Brittany's book, is really big picture how these large systems that we experience every day, just like you were talking about mm-hmm. at the beginning, Saida, like our neighborhoods and how that is interlocking with all, you know, education, crime, law enforcement, all of that. Big picture. And then, Venice, yours is really, you know, you're also, of course, talking about big picture as all books do, but you're really focused more on on individual people's experiences and looking at, at patterns among this this set of caged mothers incarcerated mothers it's in a much more up close way one and then read the other right after it's Love almost like that i would recommend i would Love. recommend actually starting with with the big picture and then and then zooming in they're both of course heartbreaking books but important really important work don't tell the people that <laughs> i mean See for yourself i mean i mean it's 
it's empowering, right, to learn about how these systems are happening or like how these, you know, to make sense of the world around us. That's always an empowering thing. But also, I mean, the conditions in the United States are largely not uplifting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a sucker for process. I want to know what the process looks like. Wait, wait, like. wait. Before we talk process. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, actually, you know, no, no. I think, I think let's talk content first and then let's talk a little bit about process. Sure. So, Cassie, can we start with your book? So you're talking big picture connections between housing, education, and criminal justice. What are some of the everyday ways that that those systems are are connected that show up in ways that maybe that, you know, if you're just going through your day-to-day life, living the grind, you know, that you may not really know? Yeah, so I, I think one thing that's really important to understand when looking at these larger systems is that they have everyday implications on people's lives. And so when we're looking at housing and education and how those are tied into our criminal justice system, we want to be thinking about, so specifically, I I talk about black people in my book specifically. And so when looking at how black people are treated in public space and because of systemic discrimination in housing, we have, despite, you know, Brown v. Board of Education, despite Jim Crow laws being outlawed, people still live in very segregated neighborhoods and therefore live in very segregated schools. And the construction of criminality around blackness still persists today. And so because we have, so there's a number of things going on here. So people live in segregated neighborhoods. So white folks who benefit from all of these systems of oppression have very little interaction with black folks because of the segregation that we experience in cities across the country. Mm-hmm. And then we have the hyper policing of black neighborhoods. And because of the lens through which we perceive black people, regardless of whether they've actually ever committed a crime or lived in a quote-unquote ghetto neighborhood, regardless of their social class, they are perceived through this lens of criminality. And so even black children, when they are in public schools, again, public schools being segregated because our communities are segregated, black children are perceived as being older than they are they're being perceived as being as needing to be held to account for their actions more than um, young white children. They're five times more likely to be suspended from school, and this is as young as five years old. So these like babies, like recently out of diapers, are now being perceived through this lens of criminality, being seen as violent, being seen as needing to be expelled from school. Mm-hmm. And so, when thinking about these patterns of oppression, this has So we need to think about the people who are experiencing these conditions every single day. And so when we look at, for example, like the health differences between white people and black people, we know that black people have lower life chances, um, more chances for like a range of diseases. And this isn't only because of lack of access to health care, but because of the microaggressions some sociologists call this weathering. So basically the constant having to navigate the world through this race, through these racist systems, right? So being a child and going to school and knowing that your teachers are going to treat you like a criminal, like you don't belong. And then spending a whole, li- having a whole life of that. Mm. Uh, it's bad you ha- for your health. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, when looking at, for example, like maternal death rates, because of how black women are treated, not only by their doctors when they're pregnant, but the stress on their bodies before they even get pregnant impacts their, their maternal health. Yes. The answer is yes. All of that. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. You touched on like a couple of things because when I was writing my thesis here, I had to look through sociology research to find the fear of victimization scale and why 911 calls in these gentrified neighborhoods were higher during COVID because you were starting to see more people and there wasn't crime happening. They were just afraid. So Mm -hmm. there's scales for fear of victimization because it's just the perception that you're going to be a victim because of the demographic. Yeah, absolutely. And the people like most afraid of crime are elderly white people and white women. The people most likely to be victims (laughs) of crime are young black men. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) 
I just know. need this, but I just need this story to live somewhere, and I just need other people to hear it, and not just the people of color it happened to. So just this Monday, for context, everyone, this is a Wednesday. I was approached, me and Cindy. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said it. Take the name out. Take the name out. <laughs> me and a person in um, the DEI office, both people of color, had been a part of this book club that they started. Okay. And there was a person that came into the last session. It was on The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Most people know that Toni talks about the reels of black life. Okay. Yep. It seems traumatic to other people. Maybe you just didn't have a traumatic life. Great. She wanted to bring the book back. Yes. Because it was so terrible and so disturbing that it, it, it just made her feel terrible. And there were no redeeming characters, including the children, in the book. And so the thing that got me... I mean, there was. I mean, this was this was the most racist tirade of forty five minutes after oh. I just told people for two hours that I had a very very bad time being black right now. Was and this in person? This was in person, wow. and didn't have hope for my black future. Okay, I just vented about this, and this person comes in and manifests themselves after I had to talk about their comments in therapy. A demon rising. Oh, it did. <laughs> I had my amethyst on, y'all. But. So what one thing that this person said it was an older white woman, okay, oh, and that's no. why I came up, was the book was so disturbing that she went to the grocery store, saw a black man, and was afraid of him. Wow. And then proceeded to try to make connection to get herself out of it, saw almond milk in his cart and went, I drink almond milk. And then forced herself <laughs> upon nice. this black man and had a conversation and was like, he was so intelligent and he was a vegan. Oh, and I went, oh, he was a good one. Is that what you wanted Ooh. to say? Um, and then was like, you know, I didn't want to say it online. This person, we've never seen this person face. I, I Googled this person afterward. I was like, who is this person? Um, because she didn't have her camera on. And so she was like, you know, I didn't want to say it online because I didn't want anyone to think I was prejudiced. But, you know, I, I'm here. And so, like... You know, I could tell you to your face. And I was like, that's not better. No. I mean, it went it went through every racist trope. I mean, it was, mm. I have a adopted black granddaughter, the of color course. of you. Uh, there were a lot of things. I've never, yeah, there were a lot of things. And so this is just like one example of mm -hmm. like everything that you guys talk about. Yes. Of just like, it happens in real life. And I yep. think being 32, I don't want to say I was naive. And I don't want to say, I would say it just didn't touch me. Mm. in the ways that it has been in adulthood and so like I, not that i needed to explain that this stuff is real right but as we sit on the podcast right, yeah. <laughs> you talk. know this just happened to me yeah and so it it, it really is an everyday thing that yeah. i think as you get right. older and not even just you see it in your childhood you know from a, a multitude of ways you know i had police in my school yeah you know i did yeah. all the things yeah I was sent to in school suspension, you yep. know, for having someone pour water down my back and responding, mm -hmm. you know, you know, like just all the things. So it's not just this childhood thing that kind of like sorts itself a tad bit when you get older. It kind of just follows you. And then it just there's a point where it just increases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not prepared in any way, shape or form for how real your textbooks just became you. The and increase? it's helpful to have those textbooks, right? Oh, yeah. Because then you're like, I can see, I can point to what is happening. Yeah. And I know I know this is part of a bigger pattern. Yeah. This is not not about me. But until that moment, you know, it's like, I this mean, is I just what life is. The blessing and curse of being in sociology. So being traumatized yep. at the same time as learning. Sure. Very yep. happily. Practical application. Um, but there are so many people that don't have that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> there are so many people that don't have that ability to understand what's happening and it just and it just skyrockets mm. and i think i'm just processing how much that happens in adulthood and i even talked to my aprn and she said i need you to breathe <laughs> and also this happens to all of us right. and i went oh god no yeah yeah that's the worst thing you could say you know so then it became doom and gloom for <laughs> for a while as in like today but yeah yeah i just i just needed a real word world example but also i just needed that to live somewhere i really did i mean we could trade stories i'm not gonna say any of mine on air because it's gonna be incriminating for people there's no getting around it but i think 
your experiences are going to be different than mine because mm-hmm. for those who don't know what I look like, I am fair skinned black person. So colorism is in my favor here. Um, my experiences are more, I'm told I'm the token. Like Ooh. the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, <laughs> I was in New Orleans. Like you're the black Ooh. friend. Yeah. Ah. I was in New Orleans and I was working retail and there was this guy who, older white man who grew up in the bayou and he was a regular at the store and he didn't typically get service from the black employees. And I was the only one available and I wasn't intimidating looking. His words, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't look intimidating. I I looked friendly and approachable. And for, I want to say two to three days, he came back because he was, you know, we were working through an issue at the store at the end of it. He was like, you're really nice. And I'm like, well, thank you. Innocuous <laughs> statement, right? Uh-huh. And he's like, you know, I've never met one that was that nice. Oh, yes. Mm. Hey. I pause and I go, one, huh, one what? One what? Uh, I mean, well, you know, I don't. I want you mm. to say it. I, I want you to say it. And he wouldn't say it, but he was like, no, they're not going to say you, it. You know, imply. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay. And my coworkers were like, you're the only one of us who's ever spoken to him. Because he will not engage. Like, you you know, the, people walk in and you go, hi, how you doing? And he walk clean by, mm-hmm. find the closest white person to help him. Um, but for me, that moment of having someone say to my face, uh-huh. you're a nice one. Nice one what? Am I a Pokemon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of laugh at it now. I did my undergrad in Alabama. I mean, I, I laugh at it because if I don't, it's going to be a different response. Yeah. But it's real. Laugh. You have to laugh. You mm-hmm. have to laugh. You know, like, yeah. oh, where do they find parts for people like you? This is so cute. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You have to laugh. I mean, I remember learning, I think this was like high school, like, oh, integration isn't great for black people. Mm-mm. You know, like, it's good for white people. Yeah. You know, and, and then really understanding, like, so many stories, like the ones you all just shared. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, that's the harm. I mean, and worse, much worse. Of yeah, course, of course. Of course. Anytime somebody says like one, you're a blank, you know. <laughs> you're a nice one. Huh? What? They, people say that stuff about trans people too. Yep. Like, oh, you're a good one. Yes. Mm. What is this tokenism? Ew. Yeah. And I think like this, this idea of integration being good for white people, like all desegregation efforts have focused on moving black people into white spaces. Yes. And so Mm -hmm. it it continues to cause harm, right? Like even looking at Hamden, like the desegregation of the public schools, all of the plans were about moving black kids into white spaces Mm -hmm. without realizing how harmful that would be and how destructive to those communities that would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, Hamden. And also other places, not just, you know, we're, 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 we situate ourselves in a very specific position in the world, everyone. So that's just why we get there. Yep. We talk about what we know, what we're nearby. Mm -hmm. Um, But we know this is a pattern across the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to come back to this point about process. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Cause that's, that's, you know, we're all about it. I know. We're academics. We're big nerds. And if you're listening, you're also a nerd. Um, (laughs) Welcome. So. Venice, especially as a new parent, I have to say that your book was one of the more heartbreaking that I've read in a while in particular. So you're talking about women's incarceration in the U.S., specifically looking at things um, that mothers face in a lot of forms of detention, even just pretrial detention. Um, But you include so many people's stories. And I truly I understand, like if I had read your book a couple years ago, I would have felt it differently than I felt it as a, as a new parent um, about like the depths of harm out there. So yeah. Can you talk to us about like what, what is typically what lands mothers behind bars? What happens to their kids and their lives while they're there? What happens when they get out? Um, Or maybe, yeah, just go for it. Yeah. I'll just rip on it. Women. There are far, far, far fewer women incarcerated than men. We basically know two main things about crime, and they are age and gender. We know that men commit, are caught for, are incarcerated for, are sentenced for, all of these things, far more crime, violent property, any any type of crime than women are. And Uh then age is the other one. As people get older, they commit less and less and less crime. 
So women mostly are incarcerated for lower level offenses, drug and property crimes that are in pursuit of survival often, or that are in collaboration with but lower status than a man. And then often there's a feminist theory, a criminological theory called feminist pathways theory, which says that girls who are abused in the home then go on to try to protect themselves and their ways of surviving are then criminalized in the form of status offenses, for example, like running away. Once Mm -hmm. they are criminalized because of these survival strategies, then they fall even deeper in because then they are sent back to the homes where they're being abused. So then they have to engage. They don't have to, but then drug use can be used to numb the pain of self-medication. And then once you're into illicit substances, then you might engage in property crime or in sex work in order to support habits that are your ways to survive, mm-hmm. right? So what we're doing is we're criminalizing survival strategies mostly for black women. And it can be applied to men, but it is a feminist theory. And criminology is so full of theories about men that we're going to grab this one. Yeah. So women are in for survival. They're, they're for survival that might not look like survival to us, but is survival. It is drug use. It is property crime in support of that drug use. And then it is being subordinate to men who have a lot more power in the world of committing crimes. Once women are inside, again, there are far fewer women inside than men. So, and, and I'm talking about gender as a binary because we in our criminal legal system have it as a binary. Mm-hmm. So we do, in our systems, erase that sort of non-binary nature of gender. So that's why I'm speaking in that way. So once women are inside, there are far fewer women. So therefore, their correctional facilities are often farther away from their families. When women are incarcerated, when moms are incarcerated, the children don't go the same places as when dads are incarcerated. When dads are incarcerated, overwhelmingly the children go with the mom. Uh, But when moms are incarcerated, children are far more likely to go to grandmothers, to aunts, to female family members, but then also to DCF and Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember very distinctly working at the Women's Prison Association. We would often have women coming off of the bus from Rikers, or we would pick them up in a van from Rikers. Kenny, who also played... Santa Claus every year, he would pick them up from the bus at Rikers. And uh, there was a woman who came in and she was going through sort of what she needed. They always had black garbage bags with them. And they were talking about this and she was like, all right, well, talk to me about my kids. But her kids, because we have very horrible laws in this country, her kids had been uh, removed from her. There's something called determination of parental rights, a TPR. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her children had been TPR'd while she was incarcerated. And we had to, someone had to physically restrain her as she ran out to go jump in front of a subway train because her children had been adopted by someone else. Um, So the, the likelihood of disruption because of your parenting is completely different for men versus for women. Women are far more likely to have had to have been unemployed or underemployed before their incarceration, far lower levels of education, substance abuse, mental health problems. I mean, you name it and they've got it. And my personal view of it is that oh, it's such a long story, but that the concentration, because there are so many men in prison, right? Anybody who's mm-hmm. ever been to a men's prison facility, it's just people everywhere. There's so many people. Women's correctional facilities are so much smaller and tighter. Women get pushed so much further before Hmm. they end up in our uh, criminal legal system that we have just this incredible concentration of need and struggle and problem and just so much of being under everyone's feet that these women are just struggling so very, very much. And when they come out, it hasn't changed. They haven't gotten the visits. They haven't gotten the letters. They haven't gotten the support. There are some organizations that focus on women, but nowhere near as much as as focus on men. Women's Prison Association being a fabulous example of a place that does, but just constantly trying to get our focus. But then obviously (laughs) women have so much more impact on our communities Mm -hmm. because of their role as parents, because of their roles within communities, especially black women, that the the magnitude of the impact of incarcerating one woman is so much larger Mm. and black women in particular. I mean, you know, just black women are just so absolutely incredible and to to cage a black woman given her sort of impacts on a community is just absolutely horrendous so and obviously the impacts of the children you know i interviewed for the book i interviewed 100 
women, 98, I believe, were included. Two of them. One of them, we got halfway through the interview, and, and she was like, well, I'm not a mom. And I was like, we, all, we talked about this already. <laughs> She's like, I don't have any kids. So I, I gave her the 20 bucks. I just wanted to go talk to you. At the Brooklyn Women's Shelter on uh, Atlantic. And then another woman who, who was so mentally ill that when we were talking about her last time she had seen her children, it was clear that she was hallucinating. So I did mm. not include her in my sample. But the other 98 women, I got to interview all over the city, Bronx, every borough except Staten Island. Mm. <laughs> it Staten so Island. you hit every borough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The New Yorker says Island. you hit all the boroughs. <laughs> so, and you're looking particularly, am I saying that word right, distance? I yes. realized when I was like saying the yeah. title of your book, I was like, does it rhyme with resistance? I'm not sure. But you're looking at what is the role of, and I, I don't know, I mean, as I'm reading both of your books, I'm like, okay, so imprisonment makes sense if you think that there are bad people who do bad things. Like, here's a person, and either they are bad or they did something that is bad, and so thus we need to to make them pay and we're going to imprison them. And, you know, I'm <laughs> making something really big, really small for the sake of this conversation, but then consistent with our system. Yeah. <laughs> so if you understand that, like, just as you were saying, Venice, like these survival strategies, like if you're, if you're looking at like crime is the result of the conditions in which we live, mm -hmm. then incarcerating people makes those conditions, especially incarcerating mothers, it makes those conditions worse. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to do that because I mean, even some of it, like just the thought that you can lose your kids in, in, in two months before you even go to trial. Yep. Um, I, I, that is, I, it's, I'm horrified. And who gets to say that that has to be a permanent status? Like, who do you ask yes. in right. the community about the affect of what you're doing? And also, if that person doesn't look like you, did you yes. talk to any person of color right. to say, okay, maybe this is a really bad family situation? And maybe the child can temporarily be somewhere else until we can figure out a way to mitigate and mediate. Yeah. But to permanently take someone's kids and then you ain't even let them know. Yeah. And they're a person of color is like so wild to me because it's like you talked to no that's kidnapping. Yeah. You talk to no one. You talk to literally no one. You didn't even let the mom know. Yeah. This is a this is a person that released from her loins mm -hmm. okay and you just was like i'm kidnapping the kid because i don't think you're okay right but it shouldn't be surprising at all it's the same as slavery yep. well, yeah right mm -hmm. it is yeah. i mean it's, not, it's, it's never surprising of the process right but not to you but to yeah. many people right it actually is just the same thing that we've always been doing and what's missing from what you were saying which i'm sure you were getting to <laughs> is it does make sense it makes dollars and cents yes. 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 corporations that are yeah. making literally billions of dollars off of uniforms, off of paying salaries to correctional officers, off yep. of food, off of phone calls, off of tablets, off of all of these things, transportation. I mean, you name it, and they're making billions of dollars off mm -hmm. it. So one of the ways, I know we're not going to talk about abolition towards the end, but one of the ways that we're working to sort of break down the system is to cut off the ways that people are making mm -hmm. profits off mm -hmm. of people mm. being caged. Yeah, one of the... There's an organization in Madison, Wisconsin called Freedom Inc. that just celebrated 20 years that it's it's coalitional politics between the black community and Hmong community, basically. But they, they say the community is our campaign and they mm. prevented the building of a new jail, which is enormous because you build a jail with 400 beds, you're going to find 400 people, sure more are. than 400 people to put in there. And so limiting that means that you have to limit how many people you're arresting. You can't put them somewhere. Or frankly, even if you don't, correctional officers unions will put literally three people into that facility and call it an active facility and keep it open, right? Like correctional mm. officers, we've created a situation where correctional officers are dependent on keeping these facilities open. So they are working often in always in direct opposition to their own mental health, their own yes, substance abuse, for their sure. own domestic violence, right? Correctional officers have sky high rates of all of these different things. Suicide, Suicide yeah. right? All of those things, they're working in direct opposition because they get such a fabulous pension, because they get good benefits. So that what we really, and this is a book Mike Jacobson wrote back in like 2006 or something, right? About downsizing prisons, that we can't discount the importance of trying to figure out what we're going to do with all of these correctional officers who are not going to have any jobs once these crazy 
rural facilities are closed up and that we've pitted people against each other just as we've always done. Right. Yeah, and I think it's really important, too, that we understand that we're not only talking about private pri- private prisons, right? Mm-hmm. So we have private prisons that are for-profit, um, but public prisons also make it so that people are fighting over public resources. And so, like Venice is saying, you have correctional officers, if they are working in a public facility— who are being paid by the state, right? They work for the state. And so if we're pouring all of this money into As do we, right? Right, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So we're pouring all of this money into corrections. And I know we're not to the abolition questions yet, but we're pouring all this money into corrections, into policing, as opposed to to community resources. Mm -hmm. And to get back to your question, Casey, this question of like, treating people punitively, right? So we the the rhetoric around crime in the United States is that if you do something wrong, you should be punished for it. With without little public understanding that a lot of crime can be reduced by by giving people their ba- by having their basic needs met. Right. And so when we react punitively when people break the law, it only serves to make the situation worse because we're now stripping them of even more civil liberties, of even more human rights. And then when they get out of prison, they've lost most of their civil liberties. They can't vote. They can't get Section 8 housing. They can't get student loans. And so they've served their time. They're not, they're not able to be rehabilitated because prisons are not rehabilitative, right? They're punitive. And so they can't live with someone who's on Section 8 housing. Um, and so so by, by only increasing policing, increasing money to corrections facilities, police officers, et cetera, we're actually making the, pri- the problem of crime worse. And this rhetoric of people have to pay for what they've done, it, it doesn't alleviate the problem of crime at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Venice, I wonder, you know, in interviewing all of these women and doing that kind of work, I mean, their stories are so painful. And, and you know, like I volunteered for a while at a tenant resource center where I was helping people navigate eviction and like really and all the many other traumas that people are dealing with as like a, a case manager type. And that I felt it was very difficult to not to like maintain like to not feel responsible for them to like be able to like compartmentalize in any type of way I just felt that that was a really difficult thing to do and I wonder like how was that for you and I know you started this research like when you weren't a mother but how how I mean how did you navigate sort of your the boundaries of yourself and at the, the pain. Time, at the time, it was very difficult. You know, I was working full time. I was doing my PhD. And then in the evenings, I was going out to homeless shelters in Jamaica. You know, so it was hard. And, and a lot of the stories are just incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, I wasn't a mom at the time. I have a very, very different view on it now. A lot of the stories that I remember are stories that hit me even more. It's not differently, but it's just even more now that I'm a mother. I, at the time, it was it was just very stressful. Now, you know, I'm at a place in my life where what people need, what incarcerated, formerly incarcerated people need from someone like me is boundaries. And it's being able to say, like, this is what I'm here for with you. This is what I have to offer. This is what I do not have to offer. This is what you have to do for yourself. And this is what you have to do with my help. Right. And that there are very strong lines between all of those things. And that I've made a choice in my career to focus on, frankly, some of the people who have the most trauma, the most pain, the most, and they're going to be super messy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot about the work that Dean Spade does on mutual aid yep. and how incredibly difficult it is to work with people in the community who are the most disposed of. And those people who are the most disposed of are so in pain and they're, they're hard people Mm -hmm. because they've been through hard and you have to just find joy in the fact that like this is what it means to be alive and this is what it means to just move forward with it but then you cannot take this that's not about me Mm -hmm. I'm a vessel Mm -hmm. right like I 
I stand behind the scenes. I am a cheerleader. I am standing behind these people as they bloom, right? I can be the fertilizer. I can be all of these different things, right? So just the, the boundaries being very strong is not just in service to me, but most of all, it's in service to other people who have had lives full of no boundaries. Mm. Okay. Did you want me earlier to define desistance? Because I didn't do oh, that yet. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I, <laughs> and my dad will find that hilarious because he's always asking me what desistance is. I mean, you talk about it in the book. Me too. But yes, please do. Yeah, so just to say, you know, we traditionally talk about recidivism when we talk to, mm-hmm. about crime. We talk about the propensity for people to return to incarceration after they have been let out. Desistance is a different type of focus. It is comes much from life course theory, Samson and Laub, and this idea that as we go through our life course, there are moments in time that will either pull us towards more traditional sort of conventional society and moments that will sort of loosen us from that. So as men in particular, right, all the research has been done on them because of course it's only been done on men, right? So marriage being a hook, the military being a hook, employment being a hook, right? All of these things. So that those are the things that stop, See, think of cease and desist, right? The slow, oh. it can be slow, it could be sudden, it doesn't matter. But the process by which we all, we all stop criminal behavior, right? right? So that's desistance. And in particular, the focus on gender being very important because for two reasons. One, because Marriage is not a hook for women because marriage is often engaged engaged in domestic violence, right? So people are in domestic violence relationships, so it can be a hook for men, but not for a woman who's being victimized. Uh, Also, motherhood, parenting, very different for men than it is for women. And also that other piece that I'm so interested in is that marriage being a focus of how men desist is on the backs of women. Yes. So I think about she is not your rehab out of... Uh, Australia, for example, right? This idea that we focus, Samson and Laub wrote a very famous um, phrase of, uh, for the love of a good woman. But nobody, only one article recently has been asking about who is that woman? What did she go through? Uh, was she imprisoned? You know, where were the kids in all of this, right? So that's Like marriage of, is a remedy for men. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it, back breaks for women. So my question was, what is the role of mothering in desistance? And the short answer Hmm. is that it is both encouraging of desistance because women love their children and want their children and see their children as beings that they want to mentor and not have followed their own paths. But on the other hand, children are really freaking hard and they're stressed (laughs) and they want shoes and they want shirts and they want food and they want to sleep and they need a bed. And oh my God, it's so incredibly stressful. And if you're just gotten out of a cage and you just want to get high and you just don't want to go get back. Having a kid there that needs you and is like sucking you dry is going to make desistance much harder. Yeah. I really understand all of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, ugh, here we go, fiction, but do you remember White don't Oleander? Don't say but. Don't say but. I mean, it was fiction. It is fiction. White mm-hmm. Oleander, the book and the movie. But to your point, Venice, Michelle Pfeiffer's character disappeared for years when her daughter was birth to three because she was like you just were so needy and you just wanted to cling to me and thinking of that and then magnifying it with whatever traumatic experiences you have to oh my gosh totally resonate I'm like this is really rough it also thank you for bringing up that this is just a continuation of slavery thank you for that it makes me think of I went to see an opera but it was an opera about Malcolm X and the first act talks about which I didn't know. I learned something this weekend. His mom, after his father was murdered, his mom was very paranoid because her homes kept getting burned down. And every time the home burned down, she was going into labor. So every, almost all the children had this trauma of they oh, were wow. evacuating while she was actively like Jeez. in labor giving birth. And once the, her husband was murdered, she became a paranoid schizophrenic. And I'm like, oh my goodness. The next part of the act is a social worker going, oh, these children are living like strays because she was the only adult. There were three little kids running around. She was going through a traumatic event, an emotional experience. She's trying to find her way. And I'm like, yes, yes. And that's, for me, it clicked where that plays into a different part of the system. Because I'm only thinking in my head, I'm thinking judicial. Forensics, I'm thinking judicial. I'm thinking crime, I'm thinking criminality, but I'm, I'm completely negating that social work 
social your kids are being taken aspect yeah and, and actually to segue to the end of what Kidnapped. we're doing mariam kaba who talks about transform harm she's a foremost prison abolitionist right now she's with the barnard center for research on women she reminds us and her transform harm website reminds us social work is not exempt child protective services yeah. is not at all right mm -hmm. and i recently wrote an article called prison abolition as or no as something prison abolitions as, as prisons close something like something i don't remember what i wrote <laughs> <laughs> it's about it's about like not not forgetting about child welfare systems, which are not about child welfare at all, right? And mm. that it's a conditional way to surveil, particularly moms of color. Mm. Cecilia Gurasami writes absolutely incredibly beautiful about this idea of how black women in reentry in particular have to adjust their mothering in order to respond to the surveillance of the state, right? So relying on other moms to help you, but also calling into work or acting in a particular way because mm. you know otherwise Child Protective Services is going to come and take your kids. And that Child Protective Services, child welfare, all of these different systems are actually not meant to protect at all. They're simply extensions of our criminal legal system. It's all the same thing. Social workers and cops cars for example like no thank you i mean mm -hmm. better but that's achieving that is not going to solve our problems mm -hmm. and i think what venice just mentioned about the way black women mother in public goes back to your question about like how does this affect the everyday experiences of people of color because a white woman can yell at her children in public and you're parenting and a black woman can yell at her children in public and someone's going to call child protective services yes. and so like just navigating the world as a person just being a person being a black person in public space is dangerous regardless of what you're doing yes i love that i do These are, full circle. Yeah. it's a sort of a love hate it is but you know yeah. what i feel like i'm hopeful mm, i'm hopeful mm -hmm. especially in forensics that these conversations are really helping and I have a fantastic professor right now who is big in juvenile justice, um, Dr. Zoe Burko. And she is, I mean, her work and her literature and how she bridges the gaps between these environments and what these youth are experiencing and how it needs to be empathetic in a therapeutic space. She considers these things and she does the work to find simple things that can help rehabilitate the youth and put them back. And I didn't find myself in this world of research or academia, but like these conversations, I'm just like, oh, here I am. Mm -hmm. Activism and therapy. I'm here. Mm -hmm. I love it. And abolition, I mean, was something that wasn't commonplace conversation. Right. Or right. like that seemed like way out there like 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. So that, I mean, it's slow, but it's also Very sort slow. of a, like people who are abolitionists talk about how incredible it is that that there's even any mainstreaming of these ideas at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, at the end of my race and racism class, we do like abolition versus reform a couple weeks going over like, what is abolition? What does it look like? And every time I write abolition on the board, I like really notice that in my body that that is something that like doesn't feel as radical as it used to feel and right that, that lots of people are probably talking about abolition in their classrooms right now yeah 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 mm, they're not they're not <laughs> <laughs> i mean more more than i don't know i feel like i should no. hear it more in like a forensic setting in a justice right. driven oh, yeah. setting oh, yeah. and the first time i'm hearing it is right now and this is the end oh, of the semester there's some work for you so there's a lot there mm-hmm I'm wishing. You know what's always up. You know what? <laughs> but I'm glad. I feel like that push to abolition is happening because there's so many more of us yeah. in educational spaces, right? Like yeah. right now, navigating educational spaces is the, oh, you can't say what you want. What does the research support? That's me. So I think we're going to move there quicker because there's so many of us who are like, you know what? We're going to be the change. We're going to mm -hmm. we're gonna do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we do have to deal with that messy piece about how deeply integrated all of like in, in our economies and then the pitting of us versus them. That's a lot we need to get. Mm -hmm. Well, Sodexo, if anybody had lunch or breakfast at Southern Connecticut State University today, you ate food prepared by Sodexo, which is the same company that makes millions of dollars off of prison facilities. Mm -hmm. So it's all I integrated. Mm -hmm. Also, it ruined my stomach for two weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you were drinking. We you were eating food of corruption. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe talk. that's what it was. I just felt the racism in my soul, <laughs> and, and my body went no! a visceral rejection, indigestible, <laughs> very vi- visceral rejection. <laughs> <laughs> we have a good time. All we right. Do. Uh, so, okay. On that note, what? I mean, first of all, I do think this is kind of a, a PSA for hey, take a sociology class. Yes. Absolutely. You know, do that. But um, what's next for y'all? What are you working on now? What are you working on next? Do you know? (laughs) You don't have to know. I don't know. Oh, well, I actually, a colleague who used to be a sociologist at Southern, uh, Dr. Adam Pittman, Mm. uh, he's now at Corners at Northwestern University in Chicago. Him and I recently got a Russell Sage grant to look at how police specifically the Yale Police Department and New Haven Police Department reinforce patterns of segregation. So mm-hmm. most segregation theories, most sociologists are looking at these theory or discrimination within the housing market, uh, discrimination based on uh, individual preferences, right? So like, what are white people doing to keep people of color out of their neighborhoods? And then income differentials. So we know that in general, black people make less money than white people and so can af- can't afford the same houses. But even when controlling for income, poor white people live in better neighborhoods than middle class black people. And so most of the theories around segregation are looking at discrimination within these institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but more and more research is coming out about how these other state actors reinforce segregation patterns. And so we're looking at how do police maintain this divide between this campus-oriented downtown at Yale, like where Yale University is located, and the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, because even just looking at the the racial demographics of downtown, it's about 50% white. And then when we, so from our sample neighborhoods, um, they are about 50% black. And so we have this almost like flip of the racial demographics of the downtown neighborhood and the neighborhoods that are directly next to the downtown neighborhoods. And, um, you know, originally this research, we were looking at what are the kind of social, emotional impacts of living so close to an elite institution. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, you can't go to your neighborhood school because your neighborhood school is Yale University. Right. <laughs> and so, like, how does that affect a person? And as we've been interviewing people, just more and more people are just talking about how police don't allow them into those spaces. And when they are in those spaces, they're made to feel as if they don't belong. Um, and Michelle Bell's work. Um, sorry, not Michelle. Get rid of that. <laughs> we'll just get rid of that whole thing. But anyway. <laughs> There are there are more and more sociologists looking at how do how are police actors in these these patterns of of you know entrenched segregation across the United States. Monica Monica Bell is her name. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen to me with the like the pressure of the semester and all the work that we're doing all the time. Yes, I mean, and all the th- like, how many people have you read in your lifetime? Yeah. I, mean, I know. So I'm impressed that you were able to pluck that one out. <laughs> So for me, a, a whole bunch of things going on all at the same time. But in particular, I have a book with UC Press that is under review right now that hopefully will come back to me positively soon and then I can finish that up. It's a textbook supplement. So for regular criminology textbooks, this will be a supplement that goes along that has a critical criminological perspective. So every time a, a criminology theory, you read about it in you know chapter three, you go to my book and read chapter three and I'll be like, wait a second, but did they talk about this, 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 and this, nice. right? Um, so I'm excited about the potential for that. Uh, and then the other thing is I'm co-chair of the Women's Resettlement Working Group, the New Haven Women's Resettlement Working Group, uh, which was started... Um, by Professor Amy Smoyer in the uh, social work department and then continued uh, with Dr. Amber Kelly at Quinnipiac in social work uh, and now is with me. We're the sort of academic co-chairs. I'm now the third academic co-chair. We co-chair with a directly impacted person. Um, Sharona Lewis is my directly impacted co-chair. She's freaking phenomenal. Um, We are, right now, our focus is that tomorrow 
we have an event here on Southern's campus. We are going to be raising money to bail moms out for the holidays. Uh, There's a number of uh, pregnant women incarcerated right now at York Correctional Facility. They're in pretrial detention. So we're trying to raise bail for them. And also we're going to be packing backpacks full of supplies. We've got a whole bunch of backpacks and a whole bunch of supplies coming in. Uh, We are in partnership with the Connecticut Bail Fund and Building It Together Connecticut. Um, So I'm excited for that. And we're going to be making that, hopefully, we're going to be making that a semester, every semester thing. We're going to do it for Mother's Day and for the holidays every year to get Southern involved in its community. That's awesome. That's tomorrow. I love that. Which will be like... A week and a half ago when this episode actually drops. Yes, but, right. <laughs> but yes, they're doing it. I mean, watch our social media. That's it. Yeah. Well, as a social justice student <laughs> in a forensic program, if people want to get involved, if we want to do the things and be in the community and be activists and well-versed in what the communities have to offer for these marginalized people, where do you find them? How do you find them? What do you look for? I know that's a giant question to end on. No, I feel like, you know, I, I'm thinking about that because when I was in New York, my aunt was like, you want to go to a social justice convention at the Javits? And I'm like, mm. sure. How'd you find out about it? But let's do yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do people find out about these kind of social justice initiatives or conventions or even just groups? There were so many at the top of this conversation. Venice mentioned one. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I haven't even heard of that. And I'm a New Yorker. What? Right, so right, right. how do you hear about them? Where do you look or a main website that might have links or anything in the world if we want to get involved? I'm just saying that because I wish we had another hour. I know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll go. So if you're interested in the concept of in sort of the topic of reentry here in the New Haven area, there's the New Haven Reentry Roundtable that takes place every single month. Uh, The Women's Resettlement Working Group is a spinoff of that. So you can get involved with us. We meet the first what is it? The first Wednesday of every month. We just had our meeting before this meeting in our Zoom. I've got a Facebook page and we have a MailChimp and all that stuff that I've been doing. I've been doing it. Uh, so Women's Resettlement Working Group, New Haven Reentry Roundtable are both two things. Another spinoff of Women's Resettlement Working Group is SWAN, Sex Workers and Allies Network. So if you're interested in harm reduction, SWAN is around. So th- that's a bunch of different ways. Obviously, you can come to us in sociology. If you're in the city, the Women's Prison Association has been around for a very long time. There's the uh, New York Initiative for the Children of Incarcerated Parents. The Osborne Association and Fortune are much larger reentry organizations that don't do as much for women, but do have some things to do with women. Here in Connecticut, there is a Connecticut Initiative for Children of Incarcerated Parents out of UConn. Um, you know, there's just, there's so many people doing amazing things out in Bridgeport. They've got uh, Hang Time and Her Time, which are support groups that happen. Hang Time is overall, but ended up being mostly men. So her time came along after that. And I think they've got New Haven groups now too, as well. And of course, there's also uh, more locally, there's um, people against police brutality in New Haven. There's Black Lives Matter New Haven. And there are a lot of people doing organizing around policing in Hamden as well. So, you know, folks running for office, uh, trying to be on the police commission, uh, that sort of thing to have more police accountability in Hamden. I just want to say two more, just the Connecticut Bail Fund and building it together are two super grassroots organizations. J.O. Richardson runs both of them as his primary in both of them, and he's just really down on the ground doing what needs to be done, giving what needs to be given to the community. I think that's such an antidote to like these problems right now that feel so big, and it's just like, I mean... But the the antidote is to get connected and start doing what you can and being in relationships with people. Because I think that that brings these issues, even when you're looking at like, oh, look at these big structures and like these problems are huge. And then like look at individual stories and and work with people individually. That's how it starts. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that you were asking the how. It it really is just, (laughs) I hate this word. (laughs) Showing up? It's networking. You're the queen of it. I didn't know I didn't. <laughs> Listen, literally at St. John's my freshman year, it was like, you must network. I said, how do you, what? And I guess I guess it worked. I don't yeah. know. Um, but literally, like, what I do is I Google. So at this whole conversation, I've been Googling everyone. Ah. And every time someone suggests a book, when I tell you I'll go, okay, so it's the devil. But I do go to Amazon and I have it in my wish list so I can get it at an independent bookstore. There you go. Well, you can um, go to... Um, 
bookstore.org no, yes. book and they do they get a like they a ship store? from your local bookstore yeah so it's like an amazon for books but they ship it from local bookstores oh i know we also that. possible futures in yes, yes always that's the spot yes. and they have promoted bookstore.org so yeah that's how i knew because i'll be at possible futures <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah really just like so so i suggest people use that little phone okay Okay. That they For have, good. that they will For not good. upgrade. Shout out to the DRC. We will be uh, making sure that the people of the Congo get their freedom. Um, so do not upgrade your phone. But um, yeah, use that phone, man, that y'all got. And Google when people are speaking. So this conversation, you can hear it on record. So that means you can go play back. You could do a little 10 minutes for it. Ten, 10 seconds back. <laughs> yep. And really just, that's how it starts. You look up something you don't know at a conversation that interests you. And you go down that rabbit hole because we know the internet will take you there. Yes, it will. Um, and you'll find it. You'll find everything you need. I love it. I just want to say one more thing kind of along those same lines. Um, not only things that interest you, but also things that make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Sure, um, sure, sure. So we've mentioned abolition so many times in this conversation. And I think... You know, a lot of people are very misinformed about what abolition is. They think that abolition means like we have our, we continue living the way that we are living, but then we just cl close all of the prisons and fire all of the police officers and, and let everyone run wild. Yeah, everyone's just running around wild. <laughs> um, where really abolition is about imagining a better future for everyone and creating a world where we don't need police, right? So it's this transition of building up communities, building up people so that we don't need police in the way that we currently experience policing, the way we currently experience criminal justice. Um, it doesn't mean that we're all just going to be running around wild. And so, yeah, I encourage you to, if something makes you uncomfortable, if something, you know, if you're having a visceral, visceral reaction to something, I encourage you to lean into that mm -hmm. and, and, and educate yourself about whatever it is. You sound like a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much for being yes. here today. It was such a good conversation. We're all having a hard awesome. time wrapping it up, but I we know. have to do it. Don't um, want to do it. I Thank know. you for your work. Thank you for your time. You make our communities a better place. Yes. yes. So Thank do you. you all.